Hi everyone, this is episode 10 of season 3 and we have Catherine Moxon here with us today from GRID, joining myself and Roy on an episode all about group insurance. Hi Catherine, hi Roy. Hi. Hiya. Today we are focusing on group insurance, what it is, how people can get it and why business mates want it and the benefits it can give to both employers and its employees. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. How have you both been over the weekend? Very good, thank you. Yeah, no, the, the, the sun is out and everybody's happy again. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I have to say, um, the sun has been out, but I've still been whinging because it's really cold here. So I've been in a dressing gown all weekend, hiding inside. Um, but it has been lovely and sunny, which is in itself, obviously, makes everybody, I think, happier. So today we're going to be going into the group side of things. It's something that I think is incredibly important, especially with so many small businesses, um, possibly being unaware of it, but also how much small businesses actually make up a huge amount of schemes that are in place within the, the group insurance market, which is just obviously incredible to see. I think a big thing for me to start off with, Catherine, people, I think people kind of know what group insurance is, but we don't, some people don't know it, know it. Um, can you maybe go through it with us, please? Sort of like, what? give us a bit of a rundown as about what group insurance is. Okay. Um, well, employers will often promise certain benefits as part of the contract of employment. Um, and employer-sponsored death benefits, long-term occupational sick pay, and critical illness benefits are what we mean by group risk. And some employers obviously will bear the cost of them themselves. They'll self-fund it. Um, but many choose to take out insurers, insurance to cover their liability or their promise. So group life assurance provides a tax-free lump sum on an employee's death. Um, and it may include a taxable dependence pension, but less so nowadays as they're getting increasingly difficult to uh, fund. And this gives security for dependents of an employee at, at a time of great emotional loss. And for many low to middle earners, um, group life cover through their employer might actually be the only life assurance provision they have, which is not necessarily a, a, the best thing, but at least they have something. Group income protection provides an ongoing income to an employee if they can't work for an extended period because of illness, injury or disability. The employee remains on the payroll usually, um, and so tax and national insurance continue to be paid, um, and other benefits such as pension accrual will continue. Group critical illness provides a tax-free lump sum on the diagnosis of a defined critical illness such as cancer, and this could be used by the employee, say, to uh, pay for treatment, for home modifications, nursing care, and so on. Now, it's important to remember that employers don't have to provide any of these benefits. So those that do play a really vital role in helping financial resilience, um, protecting savings and, and actually saving the state considerable burden. And on top of that, group risk policies come with all sorts of embedded extra support now that don't cost anything for an employer, but actually give employers, businesses, HR and employees um, support on a daily basis. So things like an employee assistance program, maybe fast access to counselling and physio, a second medical opinion service, health apps, virtual GP services, rehabilitation expertise, um, HR advice, and much, much more. 
And you can imagine how helpful these support services have been through the, the pandemic and particularly the lockdown when people have had to find other ways of keeping fit and uh, other ways of, of uh, seeing a doctor. The big thing about group risk protection benefits are that they're inclusive um, and they will give most employees access to a generous level of cover at no or low cost. Um, and typically uh, not many people will be asked to provide medical evidence and, and will get the cover irrespective of their, of their state of health. And that's because group risk providers are a bit more relaxed about seeking medical evidence. They're, they're looking at a pool of people, not just one individual. And so when we do look to capture medical evidence for people, we'll seek to capture um, the top few earners within an organization. And even then we'll only do it once and they should get a generous level of cover in any case without having to go through the process. This is incredibly advantageous as, as you can imagine. Um, not just for those people who might not be able to afford to make their own protection provision, but those who have health conditions um, who might otherwise be declined or charged extra premiums under a consumer policy. Um, and it gives them easy access to this because the employer is the one that takes the advice on the benefit design, on, on the cover levels, um, which they'll align to their, their own business goals or contractual obligations or, or merely just on good practice uh, that might look at what other local employers are doing and try and match that. Um, the employer will take advice on the suitability of providers by way of a market review. And um, this is a process that's done uh, regularly and, and thus keeps costs um, down and, and, and the design appropriate. So you'll keep up with legislation changes because your provider will, will help you to do that and your advisor. Um, a few numbers, maybe? Yeah, um, absolutely. This is fine. Yeah, okay. So um, over 13 million employees are covered by group risk policies and, and thus have this um, generous uh, financial provision without having to personally worry about taking advice or finding it or, you know, dealing with whether it's affordable, good value and so on. And we do what we say on the tin, we, we pay out. Um, in 2019, we're just working on 2020's figures, so I can't give you those, but 2019, um, we paid 1.7 billion in claims um, to 26,000 people plus, um, which is equivalent to 4.82 million a day. We helped back uh, 5,200 people back to work um, after a short period of sick, sick leave before um, they became a real uh, or, or had real problems. Um, and we had about 75,000 interactions with the added value um, embedded help and support. Cancer was the main course of pain across all three products. Um, and we paid out around 100 million for COVID death claims during 2020. What a fantastic and comprehensive uh, su summary of the market. That, it's that, a bit lengthy, sorry. <laughs> that, that's brilliant, Catherine. I mean, look, there's so many fantastic subjects in there. I think if we just pick through some of them so, you know, to illustrate the some of the benefits for our listeners. I mean, the, the first one that obviously people who do individual protection will be very aware of is the added benefit services that, that you've, that you've uh, uh, described. As in the in the main, they're very similar to the to the individual side. 
over the last 12 months, in particular with COVID, do you think the industry has, has come on leaps and bounds in terms of those services, in terms of not only being appreciated, but being understood by clients? I, I, I think so, definitely. Um, and uh, communication's key, isn't it? Um, I always say that it's no good having these things if you don't tell your guys to use them. Um, and, and they really have come into their own. Um, I haven't got the numbers uh, yet, but we are expecting the use particularly of employee assistance programs and, and online GP to have gone up exponentially over, over the particularly the first lockdown when you, you, you really couldn't do anything. Um, and I, I think they have been extended um, by providers so um, to, to more of a, a workforce um, than, than is necessarily uh, covered by a policy, for example, um, in, in the recognition that, that these are really valuable services to people at the moment. And on EAP, just for our <laughs> listeners... Um, I have to have a turn, right? Let me have a yeah, You will, you will. <laughs> um, on, on EAP, it's probably just worth just, uh, you know, again, we've talking to, to people that might not have come across them before. Could you give us a quick description of, of what EAP actually means and, and the practicalities of how it's used by employers? Okay, so it, it's short for Employee Assistance Programme. And um, I think there's a, a bit of a misnomer out there in, in that lots of people think it's only for use for emergencies. So, you know, you, you, you would um, use it, well, you would use it actually for... Uh, you know, relationship difficulties, um, getting into financial difficulties. Um, but it also, they'll also, the services will also give a huge amount of, of information and help around things like um, avoiding uh, flooding, dealing with flooding, um, or emergency childcare or elder care. And I, in fact, I've used it personally for, for you know, helping to source some some emergency care for my own mother um, so I, I know it does what it says on the tin um, but mostly people will um, really value it for for the mental health support that you get through these services and um, certainly um, some some counseling that, that will be provided alongside um, the program um, and you know, when we're looking for employers, the government's looking for employers to really support their people in this area. This is a really easy way of accessing that support, and you know, it's built into another product that's really valuable, um, and, and which will give them financial support in the event that it's actually needed. I think um, some of the things I wanted to ask um, you about was obviously what are the benefits to employers, which I think you've, you've gone through quite well, and um, probably a little bit more in terms of like the medical underwriting. So I think sometimes that can be confusing, but I think a good way to maybe give an example as sort of the free medical underwriting limits to people is if you, stop, like, if you were to take me for the life kick or IP side of things when it comes to group cover. So obviously I, I happily talk about my health all the time, but just for anybody who doesn't know, I have hypermobility syndrome. I have generalized anxiety disorder, both of which are not necessarily favorably looked at for income protection. Um, not, it's a lot better than it used to be, but still there'd be exclusions. Um, I have an underactive thyroid and I also have post postural tachycardia syndrome, which means I have a fast heart and different things going on that way as well. Um, so typically, if I were to try and get income protection on a personal life basis, I'm going to struggle. To, to, to get that and especially not have exclusions. But when it comes to like, these free medical underwriting limits, as you were saying, it's very inclusive. So do you want just explaining a little bit more about those levels, please? 
Okay, well, we, we call it free cover. It doesn't mean it's free of cost, but it does mean it's free of medical underwriting. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we'll generally give a very basic, um, generous basic level of cover to everyone within a group of employees um, without the need for, for providing medical evidence and, and regardless of their state of health. Uh, so, Catherine, for your, your circumstances, so long as your um, benefit was less than that free cover level, um, you, you'd, be, you'd be in, um, yeah. certainly for group no, nine. exclusions? No exclusions, no. Um, and um, you will find that there might be, uh, for smaller groups particularly, there might be what we call an actively at work provision. Um, so you, you you would need to satisfy that, which basically means being being doing your normal normal job, normal normal place of uh, work, normal hours, um, and have not been told not to work by your your doctor. So for um, group life, that that will apply to um, smaller employers, but but generally it's weighed for larger larger groups. For income protection, group income protection, that will apply at the day before your cover starts. Um, and um, group critical illness is slightly different in that it's largely provided on a voluntary basis. Um, and so generally we don't underwrite that product, but apply a pre-existing conditions ex exclusion instead. Um, so that, it, that does work slightly differently. Where we do seek medical evidence for higher earners. Um, we try very hard just to do that once. Um, we arrived at a position some years, well, many years ago now, where we were looking particularly on group income protection to, to look at people's attitude towards their the, um, health conditions. You know, are they managing it properly? Do, do they take their medication? Do they, you know, measure their, their blood sugar level, for example, in the case of diabetes? Um, and uh, I think really attitude as well comes into it because generally you don't get to be a high earner within an organisation if you're not motivated to, to, to keep working and, and to work through anything that might um, might be a bit of a nuisance to you health-wise, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. Thank you. It's probably also worth pointing out, Catherine, isn't it, that the other great thing about free cover limit is that if someone doesn't want to be underwritten for the amount over it, they can still take the free cover limit. Um, yeah, so, absolutely. So, so, they, so they can't be worse off by, and that's, I think, part of what the advisor should be doing is always encouraging people, you know, to go to, to go for it. It's not always a medical, is it? Sometimes it's just a questionnaire, you know, to fill that sure. out anyway, because, because you know, you don't go, but you don't go past go, do you? You don't, you don't, you don't become worse off, whatever. So that's something no, we always no. say to people. So, uh, absolutely. And, and, you know, execs are busy people and, and they don't like, spending time on these things rather than they don't like filling out forms they, as we all know they so. do not they do not but you're right they will still get that generous level of um free cover and it can be extremely generous as well really yes really, it we're can. usually we're, we're talking into hundreds of thousands of pounds yeah yeah if the life insurance and one of the uh, one of the situations we've come up recently here is sometimes you get that typical company that says, "Look, just just cover all the guys at the top." And what we actually point out to them that is, if you cover everybody in your company, your free cover limit becomes greater. I.e., the more people you cover, 
relatively the more cover you get so it's it's counterintuitive isn't it you think oh we'll just cover the people at the top because it's going to be a better policy you know for doing that and, and and end up being cheaper whereas expanding these does two things firstly it gives you a better free cover limit which helps the people at the top but equally you cover people towards the bottom or to start their careers for things that they would never have had before absolutely and i i, I think often as well it can be cheaper to do it on a group basis than than you know five or six exact policies for example um so you know and, and you, you'll be bringing probably the average age of the group down and, and the average cost down Absolutely. including everyone something i wanted to ask as well because i have this obviously it's, it's quite well known that i speak with people quite a lot who have health conditions um and i've had it a few times where people have come to me and said well my my employer offers um life insurance through work and I've gone for it and I've had to fill out a medical form. And obviously straight away, my alarm bells go thinking, well, hang on, if they're offering that, why are you having to fill out medical forms? I can tell from obviously salary levels that they're probably not going to be going into past the free cover level limits and everything like that. And, um, and they say to me, well, I've had to do that and have declined me the cover. And I don't know whether or not that is something that's like unique to some group insurers or some group insurances or if it's maybe a misunderstanding by that individual can you explain how that maybe comes about sometimes Catherine? Yeah sure obviously it's difficult to comment without the specifics but yeah. there are some circumstances where free cover might not apply um, so uh, for voluntary arrangements for example where uh, membership isn't compulsory um, but by choice or maybe for a flexible benefits arrangement um, where somebody chooses to take out life cover outside their normal window of, of, of being able to choose that benefit. Um, or where somebody's joining a scheme early or late, you know, after their first opportunity, for example, um, there might be a questionnaire uh, ask for for people in those circumstances and it might be a short questionnaire it might be four questions tick 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 and you're in um but if if you can't tick all the boxes then then we might want a bit more bit more evidence um and it might be used for people who aren't actively at work uh, on the day they're covered started or or the previous day for group income protection for example we talked about that um just now um so they're they're the, the, the small circumstances where, where that might might apply. And we've actually um, recently done some research on, on, you know, how many people have been impacted by that. Um, and if you remember the 13 million people plus that, that we cover mm. uh, for group life assurance, there were 78 people um, between January and the end of September last year who weren't able to obtain group life cover for their immediate needs at that time. And for group income protection, there were 36 people who weren't able to um, obtain their group income protection cover at that time. So relatively small numbers, but of course that doesn't help the people uh, it happens to, which is why signposting is so important to, to the group risk industry as well as the individual industry. Absolutely. Now, funny you should say signpost, uh, as you hopefully you've been reading over the last few weeks. Uh, we have we have self self styled twenty twenty one the the year of the signpost, um, and uh, I think the, the important thing uh, to say about signposting for all of us is that it was never just about protection advisors. It was always about mortgage advisors. It was always about wealth management advisors. But many people say actually, it's about 
employee benefit as advisors as much as anybody else because there is a situation out there isn't there where some EBs will look at certain schemes below a certain number and that's just not their sweet spot that you know the, the, the place they specialize in but equally there might be lots of individual advisors that are meeting smaller companies just in their day-to-day coming around um, and, and and these might not be necessarily the sort of companies that would find an EB as well so do you think signposting um, has has opportunities? And I've, I'm talking about from, from both sides, for, you know, for, for the EV market in terms of uh, people referring to them, but equally then referring back to, to potential other specialists. I'm going to quickly put in, if that's OK, just for the listeners who aren't familiar with group. Can we explain what EB is, please? Employee benefit advisors. Employee so benefit traditionally, advisors. the employee benefit advisors were companies who would look after um, historically larger employers. Okay, so they, they they would tend to have limits as to you know the numbers of people they would look after, um, and I was just just very conscious of I mean those figures that you mentioned, Catherine, are, are phenomenal in terms of the amount of people that are covered, but we do always need to be aware of that ninety five percent of companies in the UK are, are ten people or less, aren't they? So mm-hmm. it's it's brilliant for the for the big employers that have these, but actually there are vast yeah millions of people that just don't have access. Uh, and that might historically have been because of of that level of, of serviceability. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, um, some employers don't know what they don't know, do they? Um, and, uh, you know, it's not until the situation comes along where somebody's off sick for a, a, a length of time, for example, or somebody dies within the business that they think, you know, um, should we have done something about that? Um, so I, I, I think serviceability is, is, is a, a really important thing. But I, I think that employee benefit advisors, um, it, some will really see these markets as as, as as important as their larger clients. You know, smaller businesses don't necessarily stay small, do they? They, they grow. Um, and, uh, you know, many advisors will be set up in such a way that they do have uh, arrangements in place to, to help smaller employers um, and, and that might be by um, pooling all their smaller groups together with one particular group risk provider for example um, where a smaller employer will, will get the advantage of the services that a larger employer will get um, and maybe better free cover levels for example um, what they might not get or they won't get necessarily is a full review of the market, but often that could cost you more than any saving you might make by undertaking the exercise at, at that sort of size. Um, so there, there are um, arrangements in place um, with, with most, most employee benefits advisors where, where they, they can help smaller employers um, and you know, through offering a, a slightly more streamlined service. Um, to, to, to help them to, to gain the advantage of, of, of the group market. Nevertheless, I think we're probably saying there's still an opportunity here. And I guess one of the questions that Catherine and I get asked a lot by our individual colleagues is, is this a marketplace that we should, we should think about getting into just because of the vast size of it? What, 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 what would you say to a, a, a protection only, individual protection only advisor that was thinking of looking into group? 
I'd, I'd say, yeah, um, by by all, all means, certainly, you know, the, the more advisors, the better. You know, I, I, I think there are so many small employers out there who don't have access to an advisor, um, but where their um, their execs might might use a, a mortgage advisor. Um, and, and so there are opportunities to, to broaden that conversation out. Um, but it, I'd say don't dabble, either do it, don't do it <laughs> or signpost it. Um, you know there there are some some expensive mistakes to be made in this business, um, and but in in the same way that you become an expert within your own field of knowledge, um, it, there's no reason why you can't do the same in, in terms of group risk, and and particularly if you're already dealing with individual protection products, they're not the same; they are different. Um, you know, apples, pears, bananas, maybe. Um, but but you you will have a reasonable understanding. It's just about due diligence, about finding out. Um, you know, the CII do a, a qualification called GR1. Um, Grid does a, a number of of, of uh, or training on a number of levels. Um, so join join Grid, get the training, um, and and you know, um, build up to it. I was going to say that was the thing I was going to come on to next, actually, was that point of saying don't dabble, you know, in a sense, it, it is something where especially if people have, um, you know, you know, potentially protection on their lifetime allowance, it can be quite significant mistakes that can be made depending upon um, in the life insurance side of things, the group life, whether or not someone chooses a registered or accepted scheme. I'm wondering if it's just worthwhile having a, a, a brief chat, um, Catherine, about what the differences between those two options are, just in case somebody is dabbling um, a little bit in the group space, so they know that they, um, so they maybe have some ideas initially as to try and avoid what could be a, a very, very nasty um, situation. I'm Indeed. loving the word dabbling on a Monday morning, by the way. Dabble. What a fantastic Monday morning word. <laughs> <Dabble>. <laughs> Yeah, uh, group life um, historically sits within the pensions tax regime, and and the roots of this are steeped in history and and go back, you know, to the year dot. Um, but but that does bring complications around the lifetime allowance and pension protection. And uh, you know, when we look back to a day, I can't even remember how long ago that was. Was it two thousand six? Was it two thousand four? Was that anyway. a long time ago? Anyway, a long time ago. Anyway, <laughs> um, so that was supposed to simplify it, uh, really. But for me, I, I just think it further complicated matters, um, and particularly the fact that somebody can use lose their pension protection just by joining a registered group life scheme. So many employers will use an accepted group life policy for their high earners. An accepted group life is uh, the group version of a relevant life policy, which most of your li listeners, are, I'm guessing, will be familiar with. Yeah. Um, and, and they might just use it for their high earners or they might use it for everybody because, um, you know, particularly when you get to a, any sort of size, are, are you really going to ask each new hire about their pension protection, particularly, you know, when they're not, exact level you, you you know I'm, I'm not sure that um, you're going to be doing that as an employer so maybe it's safer to pop everybody into an accepted scheme but there are disadvantages to doing that as well in that um, there's a number of criteria to, to that must be met um, and also there are potential uh, charges at tax charges at entry every 10 years and on exit um, on the discretionary trust that he used primarily to distribute the proceeds tax-free. 
Um, so Grid and the Access to Insurance Group are campaigning for the removal of those tax charges under accepted Group 5 policies uh, because they're mainly arbitrary. Um, they raise very little for HMRC, but they're incredibly expensive for employers in terms of taking legal advice. Um, and it really would result in a simplified way for employers to provide life assurance for their people. So we should probably give a live example, shouldn't we, Catherine? Let's say you had a person that had a multiple salary of death and service that took them up to five, six hundred thousand pounds if they were to pass away at work. And then they had a pension benefit that was over, uh, took them over 1.1 million, which is the current allowance uh, currently. Uh, that would result in a 55 percent tax charge. So yeah. this is this is a really punitive tax. And one of the problems there you quite rightly pointed out is that not every employer is going to be aware of someone's past pension arrangements, particularly if they've had a final salary scheme, because the way final salary schemes are worked out is slightly different to others. And in, I think in, one, of, yeah, one, of the, one of the dilemmas here talking to employers is that they would quite rightfully turn around and go, not only do they probably not know, but they probably it's none of their business to ask that question. And therefore, sometimes you do hit this sort of, you know, proverbial brick wall. Plus, of course, it's not as simple as I've just described, because any pension growth, so growth within your pension fund, could equally take over the 1.1 million. And as we all know, in the recent budget, uh, the Chancellor has frozen that limit, uh, you know, certainly for the next three or four years, maybe for longer. So more people than you'd expect fall into this trap, if I may call it a trap. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, the question is, who pays that 55% tax charge? You know, is it the responsibility of the company, the trustees, um, or, or, or the beneficiaries as well? So, you know, there's that complication as, as well to consider. Um, so, as I said, many, many employers are going straight into a, an accepted group life policy for, for everybody that they, they employ. It becomes quite scary, actually, bit as an advisor, actually, because... If you are advising on group and then obviously, as you say, and somebody that you're helping with the scheme suddenly employs somebody and there's that conversation isn't happening, you're not necessarily going to know that somebody's entered into the scheme. It's kind of a case of, well, where does the, if there's any kind of fallout, which there's bound to be fallout somewhere, whose fallout is it? Is it the employer? Is it the advisor? Is, you know, where, where does that happen? And I think that's why it's so important. Like we like said, I'm going to say your favourite word again, why we don't dabble. We make sure that we get the, the good training, especially from places like Grid, and make sure that we are really feeling as if we're on top of knowing all these little intricacies. As with anything, there's always intricacies in these things that we need to, to, we need to learn about. So obviously, I, as everybody knows, I do protection side of things. I don't do investments. I don't do pensions. I would be absolutely terrified of suddenly going, like thinking, I'm going to do pensions and I'm just going to start to dabble a little bit and yeah. see where I go. Um, I think that would be, that seems like the, the worst idea I could possibly ever do. So I think it's incredibly important that people do take that step to take the, really take the training before they start to go into it. But it is well, absolutely. Really worthwhile and, and, doing. Yeah. And, and you know, this, this is regulated business by the FCA as well. So, you know, it, you, you need to demonstrate competence. Um, so there's that as, as well. And and the thing about group risk is, you know, the, the concept's really easy, isn't it? It's really simple. You know, you die, we pay you. You're off sick for any length of time, we pay you. You, you get a critical illness, we pay you. But the regime it all sits in is, is incredibly complicated um, and, and can be a disincentive for employers um, and, and for advisors. 
Absolutely. In terms of the fear factor, um, you know, that's something that uh, you know, a lot of articles have been written on about. And I, I know Rob Wheatcroft, uh, who's a bit of a god of the industry, has been talking about this recently as well. Um, the fear factor shouldn't be something that precludes people from, from uh, let's, let's remove the word dabbling and uh, let's say going into this business properly. Um, uh, would, would you say that that just reinforces signposting, though? Because isn't this the whole point about our industry should be joining together in so many different ways as a united force and not everyone's going to expect the advisor to be the expert to your point Catherine at the pension at the protection at the group yeah. at the everything else and actually if we if we come together as as an industry and you might have two or three advisors within your signposting group no no, no uh, corporate uh, company is going to have a problem with that presumably no not not at all you know you're, you're just providing expertise you know we, we don't have a, a problem when we use a solicitor with also using a barrister do we we don't have a problem when we go to our gp and get referred to a consultant um so why should we have a problem if we go to our our advisor and get referred to to a specialist within um within the area that we need it's a brilliant example it's brilliant sort of like a comparison there actually could we, uh, could we ask you about early intervention services? Because I think this is uh, a subject where, you know, I've, I've got a fit in both camps, as you know, where I'd say the group side of our business has done fantastically well, particularly recently, and particularly over the last uh, year or so with mental health and well-being. Whereas I think Catherine and I would both agree the individual side probably, uh, what's that famous phrase from the school, must do better. That's what, what I got told quite a lot. But uh, could you give <laughs> us an example of, of, uh, of early intervention and, and why it's worked so well on the group side? Okay, um, well, we sort of started this journey some years ago, well, many years ago now. I've been working for quite a long time now, um, where we, we looked at, you know, in the old days, you had a group income protection policy and somebody would be off sick for six months and you'd get the policy down, dust it off, phone the, you know, write to the insurer, phone the insurer and say, oh, I've got somebody who's been off for six months. And the insurer would then start gathering medical evidence to support a claim, which could also take six months. And, you know, meantime, this poor person is, is in receipt of nothing. Um, and um, so we started to move away from that and to look at, um, you know, what is somebody capable of? What, you know, rather than focus on, on the disability, the illness, you know, what, what is it that is preventing them from getting back to work? And, and many times it would be, you know, they couldn't access treatment. Um, and so we began to think, well, you know, what if we made that a bit easier to access? Um, and, uh, you know, roll forward many years, you know, we, the next stage on that journey was really to think, well, okay, <clears throat> let's start intervening. Let's start um, meeting with somebody, you know, in, in their first month of absence, because it was becoming very clear that, you know, once somebody's off work for six months or, or more, that the chances of getting them back are, are, are fairly slim. You know, they've, they've become um, really um, embedded in this, in, in, in this absence. Um, and so we, we really do see the value of, of all these interventions that we provide and, and the extra services that we provide. They're all intended to help people deal 
with not just illness, but things that distract them, like just simply moving house, for example, there's a big load of stuff around moving house. So let's try and, and, and keep that um, easy for somebody and, and give them the help that they need with that. Um, and, you know, particularly around mental health conditions, um, around musculoskeletal conditions, let's get them that treatment. Let's get them into some counselling. Let's get them into some physio. Um, and the next stage in that journey was, well, OK, well, let's look at ways that we can prevent somebody going off ill. If somebody knows how to sit properly at their desk, for example, that's going to save them an awful lot of backache. Um, and so... I think we we arrived at uh, this point some some years ago where we we were ahead of the state in in looking at you know how to help people get back to work or or stay in work and not be not be absent in the first place and it it really does work you know the uh, five thousand odd people that we got back to work within a, a relatively short time space um, during 2019 sort of demonstrates the effectiveness of that um, and at the end of the day. It will mitigate claims and it will keep uh, employers' premiums and costs down. Um, and it, it really is worth doing. Um, but we have quite a long deferred period within which to do that, whereas that's not necessarily the case on, on some individual policies, is it? So I, I can see why that might not be attractive to an individual provider necessarily but certainly in terms of mitigating the longer term claims I, I don't see why there would be any difference. Yeah I, I think that uh, what frustrates uh, the likes of Kaplan and I and, and other people on the individual side is when you have someone who rings you up in the early days typically a 13 week 26 week referral and says look I, I do anticipate a claim and we try and ring the insurer on their behalf and uh, we get the, the you know, the statutory responses will we'll come back when the deferral period's up, uh, which is just outrageous if you think about it. Um, well, I, and I think, mm, sorry. Yeah, yeah so uh, no, I, I've just always thought, well, hang on a minute. If I, if I make that same phone call to a group provider, who often, by the way, could be the same provider, um, uh, you get a completely different attitude. And I, and I think the other great thing for, for early intervention from a HR point of view, is that particularly with mental health and, and, and wellness, which is quite right in the thing that, uh, you know, takes front of house and, and is now no longer the taboo subject it was, with a smaller company where the HR capabilities, you know, might be limited, or if, if at all, the fact that they have that help in, in particular with mental-related claims is it's just a godsend to those sort of companies because obviously they don't have the skill set to deal with it themselves, whereas you can pass it over to an insurer who has the qualified counsellors and psychotherapists and psychologists and all that sort of stuff. And I always think it's just a bit odd that we don't do that on the, on the individual side when, you know, the biggest cause of, uh, of claim is mental health now. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, no, it's difficult to comment really from, from my perspective because it, it is so effective and we do find it works. And, but also it's, um, you know, for, for those claims where it, it will go through to a claim, then we've started gathering the medical evidence we need to support that claim much earlier, which much means earlier, that, yeah, yeah by, by the end of the deferred period, nobody's left in limbo um, and, and the claim can be paid um, at, at that point rather than three, four months later when you've, you know, left it to, to gather the evidence in. So, I've, I've, you know, on both counts, I, I don't see there's a way to lose really 
you're preaching to the converted isn't yeah you, no, i know i know absolutely <laughs> no this is this has been absolutely brilliant Catherine. thank you so much for coming and sharing the insights and everything those statistics were very sobering obviously they are sad but they are a real testament to what the ins these insurances can do and i do think it's really important that as advisors we we do look for these opportunities is something that i always say to to my team is when you're chatting to somebody as part of our obviously any advisors fact finding you start asking about the occupation and you immediately you make sure very subtly early on do you have your own company? And that should just be part and parcel really of any advisors call because it just brings up so many opportunities um, that can help obviously the client, but also it's quite a significant opportunity for the advisor as well. So thank you very much for coming. I'm going, My to, pleasure. Be, I'm going to be back next time uh, with Matt Ran and we're going to be chatting about diabetes and insurance. So if anybody would like a reminder of the next episode, please drop me a message on social media or visit the website www.practical-protection.co.uk and please don't forget that if you are listening to this as part of your work you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too. Thank you so much for, for joining us today Catherine. You're welcome.